but we do have an answer and and we still do have the church we can construct a society alternative society within the body of christ where these values still exist and which becomes a refuge for people mm -hmm. fleeing for help from an extremely broken world around them. and and that's why we have to absolutely put our foot down and not allow any of this kind of stuff to come in What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. So good to have you here. Hope you're doing well. Your week's off to a great start. We are doing an episode uh, in a week where we weren't actually planning on doing an episode, so this is a bit impromptu. David, you are in Edmonton, is that right? I'm in Edmonton. It is great sunny place. and cold. Yep. Sunny and cold. You only say that because there's a C3 church here. <laughs> I'm biased. You're biased. I've been That's to Edmonton a before. Place. It's a cool little city. They'd be offended if you said little. Oh, really? What, how many people are there? Uh, at least a million. So it's medium-sized. Yeah, medium-sized. Just not compared to L.A. Well, far be it from me to compare anything to Los Angeles. <laughs> so... Um, because this was an impromptu episode, we're not going to do a discussion around uh, the book that we've been talking about uh, at the end of the episode, um, The Incarnation of God. We'll save that for the following week. Um, but I wanted to talk to you uh, today about the topic of this documentary um, that either is coming out or has come out that is shedding light on um, a very uh, often uh, spoken about claim in kind of the progressive circles, um, within theology about the mistranslation in first Corinthians six, nine of the word, uh, homosexual and how that has essentially sent the Christian faith down, uh, a theological path that has, you know, caused all of this harm, um, but is essentially wrong because that word uh, that's translated as such is, um, the claim is that it's mistranslated. Um, and so uh, this doc, I think it's called 1946, um, which is the year that the Revised Standard Version uh, had that translation. Um, and so I just want to talk about this. Obviously, this is a age-old subject um, and is spoken about all the time. And I think will continue to be uh, a topic of discussion and, and a topic for Orthodox Christians to keep pushing back on as it regards God's design and definition of, of marriage. Um, so, but that is the claim that they're making is that there was a mistranslation in 1946 uh, and evidently a young seminary student brought that to their attention. Um, and uh, here we are today where millions of Christians believe something that we shouldn't believe all because of uh, this one mishap in translation. Um, so obviously there's a, a lot wrong there with their argument, you know, in terms of how the Bible treats the subject of sexuality as a whole. But let's just talk through that a little bit. Any thoughts off the top of your head before we dive all the way in? Well, it's one of the most ridiculous things I've seen, and I've seen a few ridiculous things. Uh, first of all, in the broader picture, he, and and let me say before I begin that because this is impromptu and you put me on the spot while I'm in the middle of a ministry trip, I still love you. That's all right. Uh, I haven't had a lot of chance to do the kind of research that I would have otherwise. But broadly speaking, it seems that this is a, a LGBTQ project, this film. Mm -hmm. And the allegation is that uh, in the production of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which, by the way, is a translation that was uh, has generally been uh, regarded with suspicion by evangelicals mm -hmm. because it was an uh, undertaking of the National Council of Churches in the U.S., very liberal institution. So mm -hmm. this was not an evangelical translation. This was came from the liberal camp to begin with. So the allegation is that 
in uh, 1 Corinthians, it all comes down to this one word, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 19. 6, where, 9. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, 6, 19, nine. is that it? I think 6, 9. Verse 9, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Where it's actually is two, two words. The, the one malakos is generally translated as effeminate or something like that. And then this word arsena koite, uh, and that's the plural of it, um, is translated in the RSV as homosexual. And so the the allegation or the storyline of the film is that, well, um, this has caused this single handedly has caused the entire worldwide church to uh, <laughs> have a negative view of homosexuality. Now, that is the right. most ridiculous assertion I've ever heard other than the earth is flat. Yes. Uh, yes. Because uh, for... Even more uh, silly than the rapture? Well, it, it, it it's a contest between the two, <laughs> but that's not a topic. Uh, but at any rate, um, so the attitude of the... I mean, the RSV version did not impact or affect worldwide Christianity. It was uh, popular in a subset of Western white Christianity and in a liberal subset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the evangelical churches never used it. So to say that it affected the evangelical church's um, viewpoint is completely ridiculous because they never used it. Uh, the evangelical churches were still using the King James Version or authorized version up until pretty much uh, the time of the NIV, which was mm-hmm. around 1970, um, and the Good News Bible, which the Bible Society translated, and then you had the Living Bible, which is a paraphrase later, you know, and so on. But at any rate, um, so the the uh, argument that this translation affected everything is doesn't hold water to begin with. Uh, secondly, um, the, it, imp, the implication is that the entire worldwide church was favorable to the gay and right. lesbian movement right. prior to 1946, Until 1946. And then after 1946 was suddenly opposed. And that's like an earth is flat moment. I mean, really, uh, there's absolutely no chance of that being true in any way whatsoever. The publication of the RSV had absolutely no bearing whatsoever on how the church looked at homosexuality pre-1946 or after 1946 or since then. Um, And uh, when the evangelical translations started coming out, such as the NIV, and there have been a number since the ESV, the CSB. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been uh, the New American Standard Bible. There, I've named four right off the top of my head. Um, I don't believe in in quick checking today that any of them use the RSV translation of that word as homosexual. Uh, and so, um, uh, so in that case. Uh, when you look at the whole evangelical church, uh, this documentary is irrelevant because none of our translations ever employed that term. And I think the RSV since has done damage because it has deliberately moved away. It, it has deliberately mistranslated a gender-related terminology in more recent uh, updates uh, to correspond to, you know, the the left wing or theologically left wing, I should say not politically, theologically left wing, right. liberal postmodern, you know, they become gender fluid and deliberately mistranslated. Uh, that's the same RSV. So that's where that they that's where absolutely that's where their problem is. Um, so uh, but getting back to the documentary it doesn't hold water. Now, when we actually look at the text of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, the word means uh, it's a compound word that Paul invents, uh, which basically means men having sex with men. And right. um, uh, that's sort of how it is uh, practiced. Uh, I'm sorry, how it's translated, either men having sex with men or 
um, those practicing homosexuality. Now, the reason that they may have a, a, a the, the reason they may be focusing on this word homosexuality, saying, well, it, it was introduced in 1946 and it wasn't there before, is probably because it's a modern word. Because in prior to, you know, 19th century, I'm sorry, 20th century, say mid 20th century or whatever, and I'm not, uh, um, haven't, you know, gone back and looked, looked at it up. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the actual word homosexual, I would suspect, is a modern term. It's a modern invention in general. Um, and so if you go back over the history of Bible translations all the way back to, you know, the Tyndale and the um, mm-hmm. Geneva Bible, which was prior to the King James Version, mm-hmm. uh, they'll use different words and translations. Most mm-hmm. of the translations are um, men who abuse themselves with men. That's the general uh, yeah. uh, gist. Of well, here's the, uh, the 1599 Geneva. Uh, know but, ye uh, not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor wantons, nor... I've never even heard this word before, and it, and it yes, made well, me... Yes, to say something rude. I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm probably about to say something uh, that's socially unacceptable today. It starts with a B. Um, yes, exactly. But it's, and that's the word that, you know, we we joke about. Oh, you're a, you know, B-U-G-G-E-R. Uh, you know, we... Can I just people, say that I that's like a very Australian word to say? And I, up until now, did not even know that that's what that, well, that meant. Is You've now got an education. In, in <laughs> the history of the English language... Uh, and if you look at legal statutes, that is what homosexual practice was uh, described as technically. Uh, right. Sometimes it was yeah, described well, as, as sodomy for for obvious reasons. So going back to um, going back to say the 19th century, it's words like that 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 would have been used rather right. than homosexuality. Right. Um, so or heterosexuality that is also a modern invention. Um, right. And so uh, so this this documentary is uh, it's it's uh, much ado about nothing to quote Shakespeare. It's right. it's making an issue of something that doesn't isn't even there. Uh, and it's but it's uh, uh, I mean, they, again, Paul coins this word, but he's quoting it from Leviticus, where yep. it's uh, the prohibition is against men. Uh, lying with men, men having sex with men, men sleeping with men or whatever. And yep. so he makes up this Greek word, men betting with men, basically. To, men, men, who, men who lie with men or males who lie right, with because men. Because it's a com- the compound word of men and bed. And, right. and that's just uh, how Paul uses it. Uh, and so he's describing a practice. Right. Right. Which is the contention um, of, of the mistranslation because they are the, the, the translation identifies a person, uh, whereas the actual translation is identifying an activity. Right, and so that's that and that uh, is is accurate. I mean, that's an accurate mm-hmm. critique, but I'd like to point out that it was the liberal translation that employed that. No other translation has ever employed that. Uh, when the NIV came out in 1970 or 71, even though the people that were on the, the, that translation committee were, were, you know, Orthodox evangelical believers who certainly did not promote homosexuality, they recognized that it was a prohibition against homosexual practice because there's a right. distinction between people who have what we now call same-sex attraction and people who actually practice homosexuality. And, uh, and, and, and in fact, I think, we would all feel that homosexuality per se is not necessarily an it's not necessarily an identity that it's something that can be learned behavior or whatever um and is more of a practice than than an identity uh but it's actually the gay and lesbian community that would claim it as an identity so i'm not sure what this person is 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 complaining about because anyway in one sense well the um, ultimate agenda is that they 
they want even the practice to be embraced, you know, so what, what, and particularly what that's couched within, what, yes, you what know, this woman, if there's two monogamous people um, who are in relationship and the Bible just, it doesn't have, it doesn't make any room for that. It's, it's not, um, it's not the, the biblical vision that's put forward for sex at all. And, and so we would say that that desire, uh, like all of our disordered sexual desire, is it is a disordered desire and God wants to uh, redeem that, you know, and that might not mean that you all of a sudden have uh, heterosexual desire. Um, but that's not to say that, that God still can't redeem and, and uh, do a work on the inside of you that helps you overcome uh, that desire. Just like we all have to overcome our disordered desires, be them sexual or otherwise. Yeah, and and not and and we would all, I think, today uh, agree that uh, it doesn't. Someone who is in a celibate, um, you know, is practicing celibacy, uh, regardless of uh, whether they're same-sex attracted or not, is not a disqualification in the body of Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, uh, you know, there are several. Uh, men who are in that position that uh, are quite respected Bible teachers and so on and and who are speaking into this subject and they actually have an authority to speak into it you know they have a an edge sort of you know to be able to speak into it because they're experiencing it um, but I think this whole thing is just another example of the completely shoddy scholarship you have to remember mm-hmm. that liberalism by which i mean you know what is theological mainline denominations generally in let's say north america or europe is theologically and intellectually totally bankrupt so the old college that i went to in toronto back in the 1970s for a couple years theological college now offers degrees in muslim you know spirituality buddhist Jewish, you name it, uh, and there's just hardly any Christian left. Wow. It's supposed to be a Methodist type, you know, training college, but there's nobody left to train because the churches have all closed down, and uh, you you don't get biblical training. You know, you get training in uh, in uh, more sociology, you know, than theology. Right. Uh, so. Um, the study of biblical languages and biblical theology has almost completely disappeared within these denominations. And, uh, and, and so we have to remember that, that they're bankrupt. They're intellectually bankrupt when it comes to theological studies. They don't know what they're talking about. And when it comes to the Greek language, they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't got a clue. And so you get all this stuff and it's the blind leading the blind and um, it's just a, a load of stupidity. But somebody that comes along and quotes a Greek word, uh, even though this filmmaker, uh, I'm just hazarding a guess that their command of New Testament Greek is probably limited to this one word um, and probably <laughs> is no word at all uh, and no understanding of the biblical context. Uh, in which Paul wrote uh, that they're they're just inventing stuff out of thin air, and and that's that's all that these people have left, uh, and it, it's just a very very sad commentary. It's very very sad indeed. But uh, you know, we yeah, and it, it, it's worth pointing out that number one, you know, our attempt here is not to go on a polemic about the the subject. Um, It's just, you have to respond to these things, you know, quite um, forcefully. And by forcefully, I don't mean, you know, with any kind of ill intent, but just with total clarity because of the claims that are being made. So like the subtitle of the movie is the mistranslation that shifted culture. Well, that's a total bunk claim. To, to say that in 1946, because the RSV translated uh, those two Greek 
words that Paul puts together as a compound word. Arsenokoite, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Um, to say that that has set culture down a path that it otherwise was not on uh, is is completely misleading and it's false. It's a lie. <laughs> I don't know how anyone could buy that because it, the history of Western culture ever since then has been absolutely in the opposite direction. It's been to accept and endorse homosexual practice, not to oppose it. Um, so, and, and as far as the evangelical church is concerned, they weren't even impacted by that translation. So it's irrelevant. Um, so I, I dismiss the whole thing. I, I think somebody's just, you know, looking for a moment of fame in the TikTok world that we live in uh but you know it's so it's almost not worth talking about except um it's a warning uh that we're just in discussion with the pastoral staff of uh an administrative staff of the church here in edmonton i'll put a plug in celebration church great church uh and we're discussing the importance of laying down doctrine Mm -hmm. uh you know that people are These, you know, these days there are people who are listening to stuff on the Internet. Um, There many churches. uh, There's a lot of huff and puff motivational speaking and that sort of thing. But there's there's not much meat to it. And Mm -hmm. therefore, um, people can be easily misled. Uh, And, you know, people that come up against something like this and uh, this the maker of this documentary may only know one word of Greek, but she may know one word more than, you know, people that are listening to. And so, and, and so they just, they, they get their faith shaken by, for no reason at all. So I think it's a wake up call for us as Christian leaders that we need to make sure that we're actually teaching the meat of the faith and also that we're equipping people to respond to what's going on in the culture outside of us. We have to be able to equip people. Let's get into some of that meat um, in just a moment. But before I do, I just want to point out that uh, the the way I even came to know about this documentary was because a tweet was texted to me. I'm not on Twitter, so I'm sure I miss a whole bunch of exciting stuff. But um, the the person who tweeted this is a self-proclaimed and and seems to be a pastor um, who's passionate about things like holistic justice, equality, the way of Jesus. These are things that are listed in their bio. Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm just kind of at a loss for, for words. Um, how, how we can be so... You know, I'm, and I'm sure pe- people would disagree with this uh, description, but just so casual about separating our views about what the way of Jesus is from what the scriptures actually teach about who Jesus is and what Jesus's ways are. So, so for example, in Matthew chapter 19, and maybe this gets us into some, some of that meteor teaching, uh, Jesus talks about marriage and he's talking about it in the context of the Pharisees asking him about divorce and his appeal about marriage goes back to, to the original design that God created us male and female. Um, and that m- men and women are to be joined together in, in marriage. And within that obviously is sexual union as well. People sometimes point out that Jesus never directly spoke to the subject of homosexuality and what often gets missed there is that to uh, to a, a Jew living in in the day of Jesus, the the idea of of engaging in homosexual activity would be so like left field, so far and away from their thinking that th- there's no context for Jesus speaking to his Jewish audience. To he didn't, need- uh, he didn't need to speak about it. Not to mention their scriptures uh, spoke against men lying with men leviticus 18 leviticus 20 um well you could argue uh, jesus jesus certainly said i come to fulfill the law and the prophets and 
you know, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you know, and, and, and in terms of your obedience to the law of God, you're in, in trouble. So, I mean, Jesus was explicitly endorsing the law, all of it. And uh, well, and uh, where I was going with that as well is that he explicitly uh, uh, denounced sexual immorality. And for a Jew, homosexual activity fit within the the umbrella term of sexual immorality. So it's just the, it's these sleight of hands types, you know, things that get thrown out there by people with an agenda, and they're just preying on those who you know haven't been able to study these things more deeply. Um, and it's wrong and misleading. Yeah, it's, it's no different or little different from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, mm. When they come to your door, they have a patter. And I learned this, did some research and tried it out with Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you interrupt the, you know, the patter, they throw, it's like, you know, a salesman. They're throwing this, that, the next thing at you. And pretty soon you said, yes, well, you know, because you're overwhelmed by what's being thrown at you. But when mm -hmm. you disrupt it and say, you know, just a minute, that's actually not correct. Uh, and, and my experience was they get extremely upset and they have no response because they've been trained to give out a patter that they don't even know what they're talking about. You know, they, they have no uh, knowledge of the they wouldn't be able to explain the assertions they're making, but their goal is to overwhelm you with these assertions. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing that we're looking at here, that somebody comes along and says, oh, Jesus didn't speak to that. So, mm -hmm. you know, Jesus didn't say anything about that. And, and, and your mind, you go, you're paralyzed. The person's mind, you know, Joe Christian or whatever, you know, oh my goodness, well, well, well maybe he didn't. You know, and, and, and in that moment of paralysis, they throw the next dart. Therefore, you know, uh, we need to love and accept people. And, and they're throwing stuff at you to throw you off guard and to stop your ability to think. And uh, so I think that we need to prepare people. Uh, you know, it's not hard to prepare people, you know, uh, with some of these things, but we just need to prepare them. They don't have to be able to uh, defend the faith and provide explanations. We just have to be able to say, look, if somebody says to you, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality, actually he did implicitly because he endorsed the law and he had no occasion to, to do that. But never mind about that, the apostle Paul does. Right. And, and are you saying that uh, Jesus, you, you accept his words as the words of God, but the rest of the, of the scriptures, you, you don't have any time for. Mm -hmm. So who, who gave you that permission? You know, um, I, I think but, too, you know, like their argument kind of turns on them, right? So the fact that these two Greek words, which appear in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, for the, our listeners who aren't familiar with that, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, which uh, came together, what, a couple hundred years before the birth of Christ? Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, these two terms don't appear in, in Greek literature, as far as, you know, what I've read, but they are explicitly in the Septuagint. So Paul is absolutely pulling these terms from the Septuagint, from the Hebrew Bible, uh, from Leviticus 18, where, like, without question, uh, is speaking about, you know, homosexual activity um, not being part of God's design. It's, it's sin. Let's just call it what it is. It's sin. Um, yeah. and, and so their argument turns on them because when you do even just a little bit of study, you go, well, Paul is absolutely saying that homosexual activity is sinful. There's, there's no question about that. Not to mention, uh, this is not the only place in, um, in Pauline scripture that, that he speaks on, on the subject. I mean, Romans chapter one is to me about as clear as, as you can get when it comes to God's desire for sex. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he speaks about men who have sex with men receiving mm -hmm. in their 
own bodies, the, the penalty for their conduct. Uh, there's really no question about what the Bible, the Old Testament or the New Testament teaches. But uh, the fact of the matter is that whoever made this documentary and uh, and you, whoever it, it, I issued that tweet, if it, you issue a tweet, I'm not sure, um, that, that posted, that they, tweeted, they tweeted, uh, they don't represent uh, anything in their own viewpoint is completely opposite to the teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what we're getting at. You know, it's the implication of the documentary is that somehow loving homosexual relationships are actually approved in the Bible, but no one would argue that. That's the most, that's a ridiculous assertion. Um, it's like saying that mm-hmm. pork was approved of in the Old Testament. Uh, it, you know, it's it's just not on. So what was what was the example you gave just then? Sorry, you cut out for a moment. Well, I I said that it's like saying what uh, it's like saying that eating pork was was okay right. for Jews in the Old Testament. But what they what they're preying on is ignorance. It's theological, biblical ignorance. It's people who really don't understand very much, and that's our that's our job as church leaders. Uh, and I, what I feel is that, you know, a pastor, a senior pastor of a church, doesn't necessarily have to be a theologian or a gifted Bible teacher. But if they're not, they need to find others who are you know there has to be in any given church leadership people who can teach scripture and doctrine uh, to some level or else we're just leaving people open in the it's in in a society 50 75 years ago or more the social values were essentially biblical because that was the foundation but now that we've moved away from that we're what we believe hasn't changed it we we're mm-hmm. still biblical people people of the word but we're now living in a pagan culture that is very hostile mm-hmm. and is moving further and further away and where there's enormous biblical illiteracy you know people used to be raised in sunday school even if they didn't go to church after that now they haven't got a clue mm-hmm. who adam and eve even were so mm-hmm. we've we've got to prepare our people and teach them as best we can Speaking of Adam and Eve, um, and I, I said at the start that we we wouldn't reference uh, our book conversation in this episode, but in saying that, they do have a chapter at the end that connects the incarnation to the subjects of marriage and sexuality, and um, where they uh, part of where they ground that is looking at what what is the imago dei, what is the image of God, um, and how there's a few things at at play there, you know, certainly we could say that being made in the image of God connects to the the fact that we are uh, conscious beings, you know, it certainly connects to the fact that we're governing beings, that we carry on that same kind of governing creative activity that God carried on in in creation. um, And we are co-regent and uh, we have consciousness like, like God does. So there's that aspect but the thing that they draw our attention to, which is um, something that to me just seems like kind of obvious that I've, you know, personally just kind of thought about um, my, myself a, a number of times is when it talks about God creating us uh, in his image, it says, so he created them male and female. And so the idea that uh, it's the two distinct um, beings, the two distinct persons coming together that image God uh, in uh, somewhat of a necessary way, I suppose. And so they, they have a, you know, a section in, in this chapter where um, they've kind of broken it down. Like how, what are ways that we go away from God's design? The first one is putting us under what God has joined together. So talking about divorce. And the second one is joining together what God has put us under. So putting together what, what God has not put together. 
Um, and it's a really, it's not long. It's a great little section on the way that we should think about sexuality when it comes to beings who are imaging the God who created us. Um, and here's just a, a quick little quote. He says, just as surely as solitary Adam could not image God, neither could Adam multiplied by two. Male and female are personal distinctions within our common humanity that define humanity, whereas Father, Son, and Spirit are personal distinctions within the one God that define God. So basically what he's saying there is that because the one God is triune, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's the distinctness uh, of each of those persons within the one God that is what makes him God in the same way our, our humanity works because we are distinct as well. So where God is concerned, uh, union requires distinctions among persons. He says two atoms or a hundred more for that matter could not fulfill the mandate that immediately followed their creation, which was God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So that um, fulfilling that command required uh, a humanity that imaged God a fruit-bearing union of distinct or distinguishable persons. I think that that is a profound argument, um, quite simple, but very profound and very important for the conversation. Yeah, I mean, uh, God existed in relationship with himself within the Trinity before uh, he ever created us. And so... A part of his creation of us involves, uh, you know, he draws us into that relational, rea- the relational reality of who he mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. part of which is the male and female, which is why Jesus said, or sorry, Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter five, you know, that the union of Christ and the church is similar to the union of man and wife and man and woman in marriage, that marriage is to be a reflection of something that is happening within the Godhead, within the relationship with the Godhead. And, and that, and, and then it's connected to directly to procreation uh, and the kingdom mandate, which is consistent throughout the Bible. It just changes its format from physical procreation to spiritual procreation, uh, you know, in the new covenant, but the family unit is considered of extremely high importance throughout the Bible. Uh, and the idea of passing on to your children, your children's children, the knowledge of God, the, the family unit it, it extends throughout the generations. Why the genealogies of Jesus are important and, and placed in the Bible. So all these things are there. And um, the problem with, for instance, gay marriage uh, is that it, it, it doesn't reflect that. Um, and that it, it does not reflect the order that God set. And you can say, well, I disagree with that. You you can disagree with God in any number of things, but you can't do it and remain a faithful Christian. That's what you can't you can move outside Christianity and say, well, I think this, that, or the next thing, but you can't say, no, I'm a faithful Orthodox Christian and I choose to believe something that is fundamentally opposed to what the Bible teaches. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the idea of male and female and the institution of marriage in the family is not mm-hmm. just sort of some random uh, um, thing that occurred. It's, it's integrally connected. It's, mm-hmm. it's harmonious. It's a reflection of the nature of God himself. And it's something that mm-hmm. God has ordained uh in perpetuity forever uh and so you can't mess with it you can disagree with it and 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 become on you know and move outside the boundaries of christianity but you can't um say well we're just going to change this whole thing and of course liberalism has changed you know people can claim to be and do claim to be christians i i have lots of experience of that within liberal circles they don't believe anything that we believe. They don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in his divinity, but they still say they're Christian. Well, they have divested the word Christian of any meaning or connection with, with what we represent as the, the, the historic faith. 
So I just say, no, you know, you're something else, but you're not Christians. Don't call yourself Christians because you're not. You know, people can have any belief they want. You you could believe in bestiality, you know, and you could, uh, you know, take any view that you wanted Mm -hmm. and say you believe in it. And well, that's, you know, okay, but um, that's don't don't you can't say that you believe in that, Mm -hmm. you know, and and still remain a Christian, an Orthodox Christian. You just can't. Mm -hmm. Don't try recast Christianity as something that it isn't, which is what the liberal movement has been trying to do for 150 years. You know, they, they, they take, they got Christianity of all of its contents, um, refashion it into something completely different, which is just secular humanism with a religious glaze. And then of course Mm -hmm. they die out having destroyed Mm -hmm. everything that was there. Liberalism wokeism Mm. it's called now Mm -hmm. is fundamentally parasitical in the sense that i know it's a hard but it it, in the sense that it has never created anything has never created a movement all it has done is destroyed existing movements that orthodox godly people have created i wonder if one of the reasons for that is because distinction is required for creation so there's so much in what you just said that I want to pick up on, not the least of which is um, if uh, if I disagree with God on the point of marriage and sexuality, not only does that uh, cause my Christianity to crumble, I wonder at what point does that cause a society to crumble if they wholesale embrace um, those ideas on a majority scale. And I, I wonder if the, the liberal church is kind of a case study in that because they're so committed to ideas of sameness and, you know, unilateral equality without any kind of hierarchy or distinction as though those things were inherently evil and oppressive. Uh, they, they can't reproduce. They can't create life. Um, and so one of the things that you talked about, that would be a, you know interesting kind of thread to follow. One of the things that you talked about is how, you know, God is uh, God being love um, is he, he is love within himself as the triune God. And and I think I'm probably uh, paraphrasing one of their arguments here in this book, but I wouldn't say that this idea is original to them. Um, this is a, a very common, commonly accepted truth within uh, Christianity that that out of God's love. Uh, comes the creation of life. That's where creation comes from. Is that God, God's love is so full and overflowing that that He creates, um, and so out of the distinct persons of the Trinity comes creation. And uh, in, in the same way, we require that distinction as well for the, the creation of life, um, which they do explicitly talk about that in, in this chapter. We had mentioned um, Romans. And I, I just. I'll, quote this one last piece because I just feel the force of this argument so strongly. So, you know, in Romans chapter one, where Paul is talking about uh, homosexual homosexuality, he's talking about it in the context of idolatry. And they say here that the fact that this passage occurs in the context of Paul's teaching on idolatry is telling the sexual manifestation of self-worship, which is idolatry, is the anomaly of, of same gender sex, the attempt to unite ourselves with ourselves if idolatry means that we are curved in on ourselves doxologically, worship, it means that we may also be curved in on ourselves sexually. Holy worship and holy sexuality both require someone who is other than us. Man, that's a, such yeah. a profound argument. Yeah, you know, and I think, uh, I mean, my esteemed um, colleague, senior colleague, uh, Greg Beale has written a book on idolatry, which is a very powerful book. Um, hmm. But it's, I think it's entitled something like you become what you are, or you become what you worship. Sorry. Um, and so uh, you do become what you worship. And uh, if you worship, that's Paul's argument there in Romans 1, if you worship the, the created things and elevate them to being God, then you degrade yourself to the material sensual realm Mm -hmm. uh and and i so i think that is the danger to society but i want to say that um there's no vacuum there you know life doesn't exist in a vacuum Uh, there's always an order 
God created an order, and part of his order was male, female, marriage, family. That's not all of God's order. There's other things to it as well, but that's part of God's order. And, uh, and, and, and God's order holds the world together if it's followed in a reasonable state, which mm-hmm. benefits everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can remove that, erase it, oppose it, legislate it out of existence. But what will replace it is not just some peaceful vacuum situation where everybody gets along fine and is equal and so on. Something else will come in. And that's what we're seeing with postmodernism and critical theory uh, slash Marxism slash Hegelianism, uh, you know, because I think the roots go back a hundred years of critical theory. It's my argument. But what happens is another order comes in. And so we get, uh, you know, the priorities of critical theory where certain people rule over certain others and some people are canceled and only some people are heard. And it's not a wonderful world that benefits everyone. It's a totalitarian nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and then out, uh, in response to that, because that's not workable, the world of critical theory is, is so far removed from reality that it's not mm-hmm. workable. There'll be a reaction to it. And uh, the reaction to it, it may not be pretty. You know, it may be, um, uh, you know, Rich, we're seeing it playing out in the, the World Cup and, you know, the Islamic nations that are opposed to, you know, it's a, gay sex is a crime and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and their opposition, they look at the West and um, they're becoming more hardened in their opposition, mm-hmm. some of these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are suffering and being unjustly persecuted, uh, treated badly um, in in a way that we as Christians wouldn't tolerate, even if we disagree with their conduct. Mm-hmm. So all this out of all this tumult, the enemy is is wreaking havoc all over the place. And so when you try to deconstruct, so to speak, um, the biblical worldview and take it out of a society beware of what you're going to get uh, as a consequence of that. What you're going to get in the immediate is not what is going to settle in for the long run. And the, mm-hmm. the people that have been deconstructing may wind up with something that they're not very happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're talking about tweeting. Look at what's going on over in that department. Mm-hmm. You know that, that on the one hand, uh, people are angry at it. Or on the one hand, people have used it, you know, to uh, cancel out, uh, you know, the people that they don't agree with. And then somebody else comes along and kicks them out. And now they're squawking. And and what's going to happen next? I mean, who knows? Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we just have to be really aware as Christians, I think, that that we actually carry uh, the solution for all Mm -hmm. of this. Uh, and not to give up. Like we can't impose our values on on society, but we do have an answer, and and we still do have the church. We can construct a society, alternative society within the body of Christ, where these values are, still exist, and which becomes a refuge for people mm-hmm. fleeing for help from an extremely broken world around. Them. And. And that's why we have to absolutely put our foot down and not allow any of this kind of stuff to come in. If you want to, you know, if you want to uh, pursue whatever conduct you want to in the world today, you you pretty well can do it in Western mm-hmm. countries. But don't bring it into the church because the church is going to be the place where a lot of broken people, they're going to need to have a place to come when the results of all of this stuff play out as is absolutely inevitable it's happening Mm -hmm. now yeah i one of the things that i wonder about is um so uh when when the subject or the topic becomes all about identity which is what it orbits around that to me is where 
the floodgates are opened in terms of uh, how these things get embraced by culture and then ultimately even legislated upon because when you make an inner feeling or an inner desire equal to identity well now there's there's a conversation that has to be had you know from a legal standpoint because who are we to uh argue with somebody's identity who are we to combat who somebody is from the inside out um and so you know what ends up happening is truth becomes the servant of desire because desire has the identity card and and truth is subservient to yeah, and it's not really that all of a sudden we're allowing everyone to be free to do their own thing and it's such a nice place to be what's happening is men are now going into women's changing rooms and washrooms. That's what's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are suffering as a result. Mm -hmm. So when you move away from the identity that God has established and try to replace it with something else, beware, because you're going to have an almighty battle break out because it, it isn't just one group that is one, going to want to assert their special privileges. It's mm -hmm. a whole pile of them. And mm -hmm. a lot of them are at war with each other. They're at conflict with each right. other. For instance, mm -hmm. the feminists and the transgender people are at war with each other. So exactly. it, this is not going to lead to a lovey-dovey, nice society where everybody no. can do their own thing at all. It's and it's, that is okay. So that is the trouble with a with and I'm going to go out on a limb here. You know, at the risk of being misunderstood, but that is the trouble with a all-out truly liberal society because if every person in society is just an autonomous atomistic being who can self totally self-determine and exists independently of others and, and exists independently of god that means that their identity is ultimately up to them and when you have a society of 300 million people whose identity is ultimately up to them you don't have you know, fairyland, you have totalitarian disaster because eventually all somebody has to do is make a case for the why the way they feel is an identity. And then all of a sudden the state has to uh, protect that identity. And so now we're now we're legislating upon um, people's self-proclaimed identities. And that that's how you get into authoritative uh, authoritarian, you know, type government uh Structures. Ryan T. Anderson, who uh, wrote a book on the subject of um, transgenderism, I believe, I can't remember the title, but he has this great quote. He says, if our sexuality is our deepest and most important inner truth and politics is about the promotion of the truth, then it was inevitable that sex would be politicized. That's just a great um, cause and effect way of, of, of saying, you know, how we got to where we are because of the way we think about our identity. The question is, David, when Paul wrote about sexual uh, immoral, immorality, when Jesus spoke about sexual immorality, when the ancient world even, even in pagan Rome, when they thought about sexual practice, did they think about it in terms of identity or was it just carnal behavior? Well, they certainly didn't think about it in terms of quote unquote identity that, that we have in the modern world as an offshoot of modern liberal thinking that didn't exist in the ancient world. But I like to point out, which should be obvious, but isn't to some people, that um, the biblical worldview wasn't just, you know, something that, you know, back in that prehistoric Neanderthal uh, mentality that existed in the ancient world that we've all grown out of. Actually, uh, Paul was writing into a society that embraced homosexual practices. Mm -hmm. it, it, and all kinds of sexual practice. And all kinds of sexual practices. Uh, so, you know, it was nothing new. Um, and uh, that's because it was a society that had no concept of a personal creator God. Um, and so, you know, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, I guess. Uh, but uh, 
in in the Roman world or in any ancient political setup, didn't matter where it was, uh, you know, there was always an authoritarian government, um, and the the there was never or rarely an exaltation of the in individual, quote unquote, the individual. You know, people just didn't look at reality that way. You are part of a, a a nation. You are under somebody's rule. And, you know, the concept of sort of rights and that wasn't all that big of a thing, you know, the way that it is today. So the 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 modern Western world, not not the world, the rest of the world, but the modern, you know, North American slash European, Western European, which is only a small subset. Mm -hmm. of the global population mm -hmm. uh, thinks in a way that's uh, it's out of sync with uh, it's in sync with themes that have been going on for several hundred years within that world, but it's out of sync with the course of history in general mm -hmm. and with humanity, the, the vast majority of humanity in other places, mm -hmm. which is why I think you're going to see increasing culture wars because for instance, um, the Chinese government is very opposed to homosexual conduct. Uh, the, the Russians are, um, the Islamic nations are, uh, mm -hmm. the, you know, Orthodox or militant Hindus are, and conservative cultures all over the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it, this is not something to do with Christianity being the root of anti-homosexual feeling or something. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think we're, you know, we in the Western world tend to think that we're in the vanguard and we're all that matters. And this is what, where reality is heading. I think that's very diluted, very, very diluted thinking. I don't think that's the case at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it's, this is one of those places, you know, where we have to listen to the body of Christ worldwide. We're extremely arrogant in the West, um, even in the church that we represent that's white Western Christians like you and me represent, mm -hmm. I don't know what, 5%, maybe less than 5% of the church mm -hmm. of the body of Christ. We're not representative. We we've got the microphones cause we've got the money and the technology maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. but we're, we're a very small group and, uh, we need to listen to what, leaders throughout the rest of the Christian world are saying in some of these topics, uh, I think. In the sense that they are much more uh, orthodox and conservative than where the West wants to go. Yeah, you know, it was the African bishops that saved us, Augustine, exactly. Athanasius, you know, and like that. Exactly. That saved us in the beginning and they may save us in the end. <laughs> the people from whom we get orthodoxy yeah. So, um, yeah. And there's so much more we could say about this. And, uh, I certainly, it does lead into a conversation around, uh, marriage in the public sphere and, and what, what we can make of that as Christians, what we should think about it. Um, because well, as you said, God does have an order that he has laid down for family. He has an order that he's laid down for male and female sexuality. He has an order that he's laid down for government. Um, and I just can't help but think that if when we go against God's order, things begin to disintegrate at a nuclear level, like the family, how are we to expect that going away from God's order on a, on a much more macro social level is going to go well for us? And I guess everything comes full circle back to the conversation of Christians in the political sphere. Um, and is our, is our effort to help people live biblically? Is it something actually more than just trying to impose morality, which by the way, all laws are the imposition of somebody's morality laws are imposing some kind of belief in right and wrong. It just depends on who's determining what is right and what is wrong. But Absolutely. is in fact, is in fact the Christian effort to help society live biblically 
more than just the imposition of morality? Is it actually the attempt at the preservation of society, at least in the sense of freedom that we know and the uh, respect of every person, regardless of what they uh, believe and how they live, um, and ultimately uh, that produces the kind of flourishing that we get to experience in the West. But that's probably a conversation for a later date because our impromptu episode has turned into an hour long. Love you, sir. Thank you for your time.